1: A warm welcome to First Move, my last show before Christmas Day and therefore a perfect time to say thank you for watching and to send holiday wishes your way. Also a moment to forget any stock market dismay or the latest Manic Musk tweet display Even Sam Bankman-Fried's hair disarray or the World Cup team that may have led you astray. Spend time with your family and friends without delay. And so ends my holiday communique. All that's left is our top story today, and that's Vladimir Zelensky in the U.S. of A. The Ukrainian president expected in Washington for a surprise and historic set of meetings with both President Biden and congressional leaders. He's likely to thank the United States for its support so far, but also make the case for more will help to DC in just a moment's time. For now, Sam Bankman-Fried on the move to the former head of fallen crypto exchange FTX set to be extradited to the US from the Bahamas. He faces a stunning array of federal criminal and civil charges in a case that continues to reverberate through the crypto world and beyond. Travel also on millions of people's minds as they rush home for the holidays. A travel nightmare brewing in the United States with a powerful storm set to sweep across the country later this week. And coming up to the outlook for holiday travel demand and the post lockdown trends with CEO of data and AI driven travel app Hopper. And speaking of turbulent trips, U.S. stocks still on track for a rare December drop. But futures today are pointing higher, as you can see, boosted by solid earnings from both FedEx and Nike. And Europe is green like a Christmas tree, too. And Asia steadying a little bit after Tuesday's surprise Bank of Japan policy move that could eventually lead the way to rate hikes there. And Tesla bulls, too, hoping for more than coal in their stocking. A bit of a rebound in store after Tuesday's 8% plunge. Elon Musk saying he will step down as Twitter CEO when he finds someone, quote, foolish enough to take the job. Hmm. That story just ahead too. Lots to get to, as you can see today. But we do begin in Washington, D.C. And President Zelensky set to arrive at the White House for a meeting with President Biden. And then later, he will head to Capitol Hill to address members of the U.S. Congress. Here's new video of Zelensky in Poland on that journey. It's his first trip, of course, outside of Ukraine since the war began back in February. President Biden tweeting, I hope you're having a good flight, Volodymyr. I'm thrilled to have you here. Much to discuss. And Jeremy Diamond is waiting there at the White House for him to arrive. It is a huge moment, Jeremy, and great to have you with us. It's also probably one of the best kept secrets ever, judging by just the comments from lawmakers yesterday who seem to have been kept in the dark too. What can we expect today?
2: Yeah, that's right. This was a dramatic and a highly secretive trip that the Ukrainian president is making uh, to uh, Washington. He is flying, we're told, uh, aboard a U.S. military aircraft to make it to the United States after initially taking a train uh, from Ukraine to uh, Poland uh, and and then uh, hopping on a plane uh, from there. As you said, this trip has been kept under wraps and it came together quite quickly. In the last 10 days, we're told, U.S. and Ukrainian officials began discussing this trip following a call between President Biden and the Ukrainian presidents, a trip that US officials said they had hoped Zelensky would eventually uh, make something that they had been thinking about for quite some time. But a number of uh, security arrangements had to be made, close security coordination between US and Ukrainian officials for this to happen. Today, President Zelensky finally set to arrive in Washington on the 300th day of the Russian invasion of his country. And he's coming here in a, a strong show of solidarity with the United States, which has been Ukraine's number one supporter of military military and humanitarian aid, of course, and he will will come here today to meet with President Biden, uh, who is set to announce an additional $1.8 billion of U.S. military assistance, including those Patriot surface-to-air missile systems uh, that the Ukrainians have been hoping for uh, for quite some time. President Zelensky is also arriving at an inflection point, not only as this uh, war heads into a new phase and the U.S.-Ukraine look for ways uh, uh, forward on the battlefield and also trying to figure out what the endgame here is ultimately, but it's also an inflection point on Capitol Hill. Congress is set to approve an additional nearly 50 billion dollars of additional U.S., uh, additional military assistance uh, for Ukraine as part of this omnibus spending package. But it's also as Republicans are set to take control of the House and some key House Republicans have cast doubt on continued U.S. support for Ukraine. So no question that when President Zelensky arrives here, both during his meeting at the White House, but in particular when he delivers a primetime address uh, to Congress this evening, he will be coming here with a message uh, thanking the U.S. for its support, but also urging that support to continue on uh, as he looks to the future of the war in Ukraine and, of course, the future of the political landscape here in the United States.
1: Yeah, pivotal timing to continue to uh, rally that support. Jeremy, great to have you with us. Thank you. Jeremy Diamond there. And President Zelensky not coming to Washington empty-handed.
3: <laughs>
1: Ukrainian troops on the front lines gave him a signed flag as a thank you gift for the US president and Congress. Will Ripley has all the details.
4: Within hours of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky tweeting that he was on his way to the United States to meet with the U.S. President Joe Biden, air raid sirens sounded across Ukraine yet again. That's pretty much like every day here in this war-torn country. But what makes today different is that it's the first time Zelensky has not been physically present in the country since the start of the full-scale invasion on February 24th. He faces quite a challenge when he goes to Washington for that triumphant announcement with President Biden of billions of dollars in additional defense spending, including those highly coveted by the Ukrainians, Patriot missile defense systems that they hope will be a game changer in this conflict, which has been dragging on around 10 months now. Zelensky has to convince U.S. lawmakers and also NATO that they need to support Ukraine Through the long haul even though there is growing pressure including from the french president emmanuel macron for peace talks with russian president vladimir putin now the ukrainians here while the conversation on the ground in ukraine is supportive of zelensky being in the united states they are also determined to finish this war that russia started and that means from the ukrainian perspective reclaiming all territory taken by Russia pre-2014, including Crimea, which was illegally annexed by Russia. That's what started this whole war from the Ukrainian perspective. They've been fighting Russia for almost nine years now. Now, uh, there the West might feel differently. They might feel that Ukraine should try to make some concessions that Zelensky uh, domestically is under a tremendous amount of pressure not to make. But the big challenge for him is as he continues to accept billions of dollars in weapons from foreign countries, and yet the lines have been basically staying relatively the same. Ukraine's not retaking a tremendous amount of territory, they're not losing ground to the Russians either. He has to convince them that the challenge is urgent enough and the threat is big enough for the world that they need to keep putting money and resources into Ukraine, especially with word of a potential Russian troop buildup on the Belarusian border to the north of Ukraine, which could open up yet another front in this conflict, which is already seeing intense fighting to the east, uh, to the south, and of course, the regular bombardment and bombing of the civilian infrastructure here by Russia. Will Ripley, CNN in southern Ukraine.
1: And let's hone in on that angle a little bit. The Kremlin, of course, responding to President Zelensky's trip to Washington, saying that by providing more weapons to Kyiv, Western countries are aggravating the conflict. Claire Sebastian has more on the reaction now from Moscow. Claire, and actually we've heard from President Putin himself not missing an opportunity to paint this as NATO aggression rather than anything else.
3: Yeah, Julia, this is a line that we've been hearing from Moscow now for some months, that they believe they are at war, not just with Ukraine, but with the West and all of NATO. Obviously, it's in their interest to make that point because it you know, makes their battlefield defeats look a little less humiliating. But we did just hear from President Putin, as you say, he just wrapped up a big meeting with an expanded board of his defense minister ministry, a room full of men uh, in, in military uniform. And the speech really was... Uh, doubling down on that line that that the, the, they are at war with NATO, he said uh, that the military potential and opportunities of virtually all the main countries. Uh, of NATO are being used against Russia, He said that Russia uh, is looking at the equipment being deployed by NATO and Ukraine uh, and building its military accordingly and The, the speech was also really an exercise uh, in ex- in sort of touting the expansion of the Russian military, piling unlimited he said resources into it. He talked about uh, stepping up the readiness of the nuclear arsenal, new hypersonic missiles, improving the systems even for mobilization, although he did say that he believes that Russia, the Russian army now has enough people with those 300,000 men already mobilized. So he is clearly, even as we see President Zelensky in the United States, potentially willing to discuss what what an end game might look like, what a path to peace might look like. It's clear that Russia is in the mood for the
1: opposite. Sebastian, thank you so much for that update there. Now in the face of an unprecedented surge in Covid cases, China is narrowing its definition of Covid-related deaths. The count will now only include patients who died of respiratory failure directly caused by the virus. That decision raising clear concern that officials are trying to mask the scale of the outbreak and the loss of life. Selina Wang reports from Beijing. <laughs>
5: China has only reported a few COVID deaths since abandoning its zero-COVID policy. But what we see on the ground tells a different story. There is a long line of cars that snakes across this entire area of cars waiting to get into that cremation area. I'm in the parking lot right now and it's completely full of cars. I'm speaking here because there are many, many security guards patrolling this entire area. And I spoke to a man earlier who said that his close friend passed away from a fever, though the hospital didn't say why. He said he's been waiting here for hours, and he still has no idea if his friend's body can even get cremated today. And it's not just in Beijing. Social media shows crematoriums and funeral homes around the country overwhelmed. <laughs> in this funeral home in Jinan, the man is saying it's going insane. Here it is packed with cars and vans carrying bodies stretch all the way into the distance in front of this crematorium in Sijiazhuang and families wait and stand in their mourning clothes at this Wuhan funeral home with no idea how long they have to wait before their beloved ones can be cremated. A new study by Hong Kong researchers estimates nearly one million people in China could die from COVID if the country doesn't take necessary public health measures, like increased vaccinations. Long lines like these are forming across the country outside of hospitals. In Hangzhou, people wait for hours outside in the cold rain. Crowds form outside of hospitals in Wuhan, ground zero of the original outbreak. This is a COVID-designated hospital in Beijing. There's been a steady stream of elderly patients in wheelchairs being led into this hospital. I spoke to a man who's been waiting outside for his elderly family member, who he said is very sick with a high fever from COVID. But he said this hospital is running out of bed space. Are you busy? I asked the COVID worker outside this hospital. Yes, extremely busy, he tells me. We even work into the evenings. Did a lot of people die here, I ask? Yes, every day, he says. Is it all because of COVID? Yes, he says, people with underlying conditions. The country's COVID strategy has suddenly swung from one extreme to another. This is what China's metropolis, Chongqing, looked like a month ago during a mass COVID lockdown, a ghost city. But now, not only has Chongqing lifted its lockdown, but the government announced on primetime television that people who have COVID, as long as they are only mildly sick or asymptomatic, well, they can return to work. But people are still scared to go out. Restaurants and shopping malls in the city barely have any customers. Subways across major cities are eerily empty. But none of this is stopping Chinese state media from hailing the country's COVID strategy as victory after victory as the Chinese people feel they are suddenly left to fend for themselves. Selina Wang, CNN, Beijing.
1: Okay, straight ahead, another courtroom rendezvous for Sam Bankman-Fried in the Bahamas. The latest on his extradition proceedings after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Will the third time be a charm for Sam Bankman-Fried's extradition? The former CEO of FTX is in court again today after confusion and disagreement between prosecutors and Bankman-Fried's Bahamian attorney delayed the process. SBF's lawyer has said it's likely Bankman fried will be extradited to the United States as soon as the final court hearing takes place. CNN's Patrick Ottman joins us live from the Bahamas. You might be spending Christmas there at this rate, Patrick. Um, we've learned to expect the unexpected. What do we know about the situation today?
6: Well, it has felt like a Groundhog Day situation where we, every day we expect something to happen uh, that, that does not. But we are told that it looks very positive that today will be the day that SBF uh, leaves the Bahamas, uh, leaves on a private flight. certainly a different kind of private flight that, uh, as a former billionaire, he is used to. But he will be, uh, we are told, uh, under uh, the care of uh, U.S. uh, federal agents who will take him uh, to the United States. Uh, Before that happens, though, uh, there's been some paperwork. Uh, And so we understand uh, from Reuters uh, that he has now signed uh, the the agreement that would extra item that has to come before a judge at the courthouse behind me. And in a few hours uh, we are are told, and uh, his lawyers have already said, uh, here and in the U.S., uh, that he will accept uh, this deal that will uh, allow him to drop his flight to extradition and and allow uh, the United States government to remove him to the US. Some reports as well from the United States uh, that he's in negotiations uh, with prosecutors in the US to come up with some kind of deal that'll allow him to come out uh, of, uh, be be out on bail. So essentially uh, that he would be under, uh, we imagine uh, very strict circumstances, not have to uh, remain in prison like he is currently in the Bahamas at a notorious prison here in Nassau so things are moving slowly uh, but in the direction that would appear appear to allow uh, Sam Backman Freed to leave the Bahamas perhaps as early as today Julia.
1: We shall see. Patrick Oppmann thank you so much for that and uh, maybe we'll see you tomorrow. No promises,
6: <laughs> no promises. <laughs> thank you. Yes.
1: Okay, the Biden administration is pressing pause on rules regarding which electric vehicles will qualify for U.S. tax credits after protests from both Europe and Asia. The government is proposing a $7,500 tax credit per vehicle, but only for models that are assembled in North America and meet demand and conditions on the origins of key components. Some of America's trading partners are calling the rules discriminatory. They're part of President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, meant to speed up the trend Transition to cleaner vehicles and boost U.S. production. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, it's always good to have you on these stories when I am deeply confused. <laughs> um, there is a lot going on here, and I know you yeah. and I have discussed this in the past. There's the concern over the requirement for U.S. produced components in order to be able to qualify for this $7,500. There's also, and we've discussed this on the show already with other competitors too of the likes of Rivian, what qualifies for the future for commercial electric vehicles and whether that gives a huge demand boost to the United States and players here relative to those in in Europe and beyond. What's going on?
0: It's really... Fascinating, and and the bottom line is that in a couple of weeks, you could see even a wider swath of EV uh, EV uh, lines in the U.S. uh, eligible for a $7,500 tax uh, credit, right? Because they've pushed back some of this rulemaking, so it might mean that there's this window here where more of these vehicles are actually eligible for this um, for this tax credit. You know, recently I sat down with the Rivian CEO, and we talked about how the Inflation Reduction Act. A big part of it has nothing to do with inflation. It has to do with a big investment and a, and, a, and a total strategy shift for how the U.S. incentivizes this transition to a greener future. Listen to what he said.
7: That policy is shifting a lot of people's mindsets in the right way. It's right. driving us to say, how do we more rapidly build localized supply chain for battery? Uh, not just us. Every car company that operates in the United States is thinking the same things. So... Um, I think that's outstanding. I think the, the reality as well is this has for a long time been something that's politicized. Electrification or a path to carbon neutrality has been politicized. We're beginning to see that fade, which is really encouraging. So it's not a right issue or a left issue. It's There's
0: been some pushback that you know it, not all EVs are going to get these great incentives at the outset and then that's yeah. unfortunate. But what do you say to that? I mean I that's, the the, that's the way that's the way the letter was
7: written. A, it's just it's a fact. I mean the, it's it's going to uh, prioritize d- domestic supply chains for sure. But I think everybody who's serious about you know being in the U.S. market is going to figure out their how to localize their supply chain. Certainly we are.
0: And localizing the supply chain specifically for, for batteries, right? That has been, um, for some of these automakers, the, the harder, um, the harder path here. But th- that's what this law is designed to do. It's to incentivize, uh, assembly in the United States and more, of the battery uh, production to be, to be localized. And that's what these automakers are trying to do. Now you've got the Treasury Department moving back a deadline on some of these rules. So we're all trying to understand what that means for consumers in the U.S. Um, who are buying either these delivery vehicles. You, you have incentives of up to $40,000 on, on a delivery vehicle, a large delivery vehicle, or for cars, $7,500 in the U.S.
1: Yeah, and this was what was fascinating to me, the what could be up to $40,000 for these delivery vehicles and for a company like Rivian that had announced perhaps that they were oh, going to yeah. start manufacturing and doing deals. I think it was Mercedes in Europe and suddenly were like, and perhaps it ties to the economic environment too. Mm. Uh, but from, from my perspective, why would you bother manufacturing and producing delivery vehicles in Europe, if you're going to see those that want to buy them in the United States get such a huge tax credit, you'd focus on America and producing for the American market. And I was just there in that normal plant uh, where those
0: Rivian uh, trucks are uh, big delivery trucks are rolling off for for Amazon. I mean, and there's just acres and acres and acres of these trucks right. uh, ready ready to roll. Uh, and and starting January 1st, a big tax incentive available for um, U.S. assembled um, uh, vehicles here. And uh, with and again, the the law is written that it, they have to be assembled in North America and meet conditions and the origin of key components. They've pushed off the origin of key components final rulemaking which means this could mean a wider window for more tax credits. We'll have to see how, how it all plays out. But it, it is a new strategy and a new direction. The Inflation Reduction Act, very big part of that was this transition to a greener future for uh, cars in the yeah. U.S. Politically
1: named. for for purposes we don't even need to go into, quite frankly, but a huge, huge climate component of this. And I think in many ways, this is the United States throwing the gauntlet down to, to other regions, in particular... The EU, who's also been very focused on this, but at a point, as we're saying, when the United States is subsidizing to such a huge degree for any business that's looking around the world and working out where their supply chains are or beyond, you focus on where the biggest demand kicker is and and where you get the biggest incentives. It's good business sense. And that's a problem for, for the likes of Europe.
0: Yeah, and it's a. Is there any industry that is more globalized, do you think, than the car industry? No, I mean, just think about that—the auto industry, which makes when you're talking about domestic production and local sourcing in an industry that is so globalized. Um, still, again, still trying to understand the ripple effects for this globalized supply chain and these, you know, European companies that are producing and selling in the U.S. and vice versa. It's it's going to be fascinating.
1: Yeah, it is, and also they've had the shocker of the last few years where supply chain. Chinks oh, yeah. and beyond have been such a huge problem for them that um, now is the time. Um, Christine Romans, always a pleasure to talk to you. Nice Thank to see you. you. Now calling all gluttons for punishment, Elon Musk tweeting that he's actively searching for a new Twitter CEO, a position that he's repeatedly said was virtually unfillable. The star search is of great concern to Tesla shareholders, of course, alarmed by the stock's stunning fall from grace, down 8% Tuesday and 60% year-to-date, thanks in part to Twitter-related risk. Can Musk truly find a replacement with apologies to new kids on the block here? The right stuff. Paul and Monica joins us now, who always has the right stuff. The danger is the next CEO gets the uh, stuffing knocked out of them. Who might it be, Paul? I,
8: I can't believe you just went new kids on the block. My uh, teenage self from the uh, late 80s is cringing right now, as well as remember. my nearly 50-year-old self. But anyway, <laughs> Elon Musk, he wants to stop running Twitter, but he seems to not be, con- you know, not be certain that he can find someone that can do the job. As he tweeted yesterday, I will resign as CEO as soon as I find someone foolish enough to take the job. After that, I will just run the software and servers teams. One, not really a great job posting. Hey, come take this thankless, stupid job where you'll have to report to me the most preeminent micromanager on the planet. and. If he's running the software and servers teams, what's left for the CEO to do? The advertising business that Musk is trying to de-emphasize as they go more with subscriptions and Twitter Blue? I I don't understand what Musk is trying to do at Twitter. Tesla investors still seem concerned. The stock is up a little bit in pre-market trading, Julia, but not that much considering the 8% decline you mentioned yesterday and the gigantic 60% drop this year think a lot of people would love to see more confidence from Musk that he's going to just resume running Tesla and SpaceX and everything else he's doing and maybe just stop with this Twitter folly.
1: Yeah, and that he can find someone competent to, to turn this around because that is a point that he's emphasized um, on a number of occasions. It's going to take someone with great confidence. Step forward, Snoop Dogg. Because he did put a Twitter poll out himself, suggesting that he was ready to take the helm. And unlike Elon Musk, it was a big fat yes in response. And it wasn't an insignificant number of people. Yes. Over three
8: million, I believe, voted in the uh, Snoop poll and an overwhelming majority, 81 percent. You know, I would love to see the name Calvin Brodus Jr. on, uh, you know, a C-suite office and what... Uh, Snoop would do at, at Twitter. Hey, I mean, it, it can't be any stranger than what Musk is doing. Obviously, Snoop Dogg is joking. He has a thriving music career that I think he wants to focus on. But there are other people that, you know, uh, Wall Street's been speculating about in Silicon Valley. Could Sheryl Sandberg, now that she's no longer a Meta, be someone that could come in and inspire confidence? You've got David Sachs, a member of the so-called PayPal mafia with Elon Musk. He might be someone that uh, you know could step in as well. So I think there are definitely intriguing candidates. But again, it's who would want the job that Elon Musk seems to be denigrating at every possible turn. And then again, you have to report to Musk, which look at Tesla and the revolving door uh, of executives that have left there. It kind of suggests that Elon may not be the easiest boss to work for, especially if he wants you sleeping at the office and putting in twenty-five, eight days, which, you know, obviously don't exist.
1: Yes, perhaps both rewarding at times and also exhausting. Um, In all seriousness, we do have some fun with this story, and I know it's not fun for some of the um, shareholders involved. Uh, um, I'll make that clear. But a friend of the show, Roger McNamee, and of course of Facebook fame, was a mentor to Mark Zuckerberg, um, wrote an op-ed or an opinion piece in Time magazine, and it, 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 it sort of resonated with me. And he wrote that we're, as media... Making exactly the same mistakes that we made with, with Donald Trump as with Elon Musk now, in that we're providing a platform, we're raising attention, we're talking about it constantly, we're sort of playing the game. And, and here's a point, actually, again, that Elon Musk himself is making that engaging now is at engagement on Twitter is at records, the, the level of volume of um, tweets back and forth and flying around are at record highs. Paul, do you think Roger has a point?
8: I think roger does have a point what's interesting though is you do have to wonder how much this does really benefit musk and uh twitter other than maybe elon's uh inflated ego because let's be honest he keeps talking about twitter being a terrible company and you know financially and that there's bankruptcy risk and no one would want the ceo job so i'm not so sure that all of our focus in the media on Twitter is helping Twitter financially. But I think Roger McNamee makes a great point that, yes, in the same manner that maybe the media made mistakes by going all in on the former president as soon as he descended on that escalator uh, to run for president and then actually win the election in 2016, it's possible that we're paying too much attention to Elon Musk. That being said, in our defense, Elon Musk runs several well-known companies and he is the second richest person on the planet. You can't exactly ignore him, especially for financial media.
1: Yeah. And he's proved he's got great brilliance in certain spheres um, as an innovator and a visionary. So um, fingers crossed he turns this around for all of those that, that do use this platform and find value in it. Paul, great to touch you. You could have just said yes and said no more and um, we'd have not continued to provide the platform. <laughs> Thank you. Speak to you soon. Thank you. Happy holidays. Coming up on First Move, we're awaiting President Zelensky's arrival in Washington, D.C. Much more on that historic visit up next. Welcome back to First Move and a reminder today of our top story. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky set to meet with President Joe Biden at the White House. It's his first trip outside Ukraine since Russia invaded the country back in February. He will hold a joint press conference with the U.S. president and later deliver an address to a joint session of Congress. During his visit, President Biden is expected to announce an additional $1.8 billion in security assistance that includes the coveted Patriot missile system. CNN military analyst General Wesley Clark joins us now. He's also a former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. General Clark, always great to have you on the show. I do want to talk about the significance of the Patriot missile system, but just to begin, how important is this visit for rallying unity of supporting Congress, rallying spirits back home in Ukraine, and also perhaps also sending a message to Russia about the broader unity among allies?
9: I
10: think it's a very important visit. It's a very timely visit. Of course, it's perfectly timed with the new assistance to Ukraine. But President Zelensky and, of course, Mr. Putin also recognize that U.S. support is really the the key to keeping Ukraine in the war. It's the key to keeping NATO together. And it's the key to uh, eventually forcing Mr. Putin to pull back out of Ukraine and perhaps the end of Mr. Putin's leadership in Russia. So, um, the United States, we would say, is like the center of gravity of this campaign. So the fact that the Biden administration's invited him here, it's organized, he's speaking to joint session of Congress, it's a wonderful vote of support by the United States behind President Zelensky. Um, president Zelensky is going to express great appreciation, but in private, I hope he's going to tell the president his candid views of where the war stands. I think we're at a really critical period in this conflict. If the United States and the Allies can pour in the support now, over the next 60 days, Ukraine has a real chance of forcing the Russians out and putting so much pressure on that Russia has to agree to pull out and really commence peace talks. If we don't do that, and this drags on and Russia rebuilds its military, we're looking at another significant fighting breaking out in April, May, June, uh, or an end of the summer, that may not be to Ukraine's advantage. So this is a window of opportunity for us. We need to put those resources in, and that means we need to be taking greater risks of offending Mr. Putin.
1: As you point out, therefore an incredibly important 60 days. Just put the Patriot missile systems into perspective for us and and how they would play into what we've seen in recent weeks with the attacks in particular on energy and utility infrastructure. How pivotal would they be in in helping Ukraine defend itself? And I guess how quickly can Mm -hmm. the soldiers there be taught to use them and utilize them?
10: Well, the Patriot's a good system and it can intercept ballistic missiles. It's expensive. Um, we don't know exactly how many systems they're getting. The news releases are saying a battery. Well, this is would be put in place probably around Kiev and it would protect in the case of Russia getting the Iranian ballistic missiles in. Pretty expensive to shoot down $200,000 drones with a limited supply of million-dollar-plus Patriot missiles, that might not be effective. If we put in several batteries, a battalion, maybe two battalions, if we could do that, then we'd give much broader coverage across Ukraine. But this is not a countrywide system. This is essentially a long-range point defense system with a relatively small ground footprint of protected area, say 50, 70 miles in diameter. So, yes, it can help protect Kiev, but not the rest of the country.
1: You, you wrote a very important, in my humble opinion, opinion piece for the New York Times where you were addressing what you see as a, a sort of fundamental misconception in the idea and in certain quarters in the U.S. Congress, perhaps, but beyond, that um, the United States is in some way doing Ukraine a favor by providing economic support, by providing weaponry. And in, you said, in your view, they're fighting a war in person for the entire international community. And, and at the risk, if they fail, that nuclear proliferation or the message will be sent to, to other countries that giving up nuclear weapons is uh, a very dangerous thing. You you find yourself in a situation that Ukraine now is, having given up their weapons in, in the 1990s. Do you think U.S. Congress, do you think this government understands that, to, to circle back to your point about the 60 days and the vital importance of the provision of support in this period?
10: Well, I think the president and the administration certainly understand it, but they're also trying to balance off the risks of potential escalation, Uh, Mr. Putin has been very effective at playing the nuclear card in this. So, um, and the administration has been very skillful at being able to help Ukraine and just come in underneath the nuclear threat. But um, this is getting to be a very tense and important time. Your question is really important. I mean, we've got to go back to the origins of this, to the statements Mr. Putin made a year ago about what his objectives were. Mm. He wants Ukraine. He wants the Baltic states. He wants NATO rolled back. He wants to diminish the United States' role in Europe. This is not just about Ukraine. This is about the future of the international system. And I think Americans have to realize that Ukraine is actually fighting for our values, not just for their own independence, their survival as a nation. But the outcome of this We'll send a signal to the rest of the world, just as you say. Do you have to have nuclear weapons? If you have them, can you invade people with impunity? It could spark a wave of nuclear proliferation that we couldn't control. It could also spark some devastating collapses of governments in Europe if we don't continue to support, and even more strongly, Ukraine.
1: Yeah, um, General Clark, I'll tweet out your um, your New York Times opinion piece because I, I really valued it. And it's not just a message for Americans to understand. It's I think it's for all of us at, at difficult times. So happy holidays. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us, you. General Wesley Clark. You Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. Millions are travelling over the hills and through the woods to loved ones this holiday season and now more than ever looking for the lowest fares possible to get them there. Travel at Popper. Is hoping turn, travelers turn to them before they head out. It uses data and AI to notify users of the optimal time to book flights, hotels, and car rentals. Hopper has been downloaded 80 million times and was the most downloaded travel app in North America last year. It says it has an 11% share of U.S. third-party air travel, and with major investors including Goldman Sachs and Citi, it's now looking to expand further around the world. And joining us now is Fred Lalonde, he's co-founder and CEO of Hopper. Fred. Fantastic to have you on the show. Just start by explaining how the technology works and why you're able to predict the best time to book.
9: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. The the Hopper app has been predicting airfare since uh, 2014. And the way we do it is we actually track all of the shopping so what everybody is asking every other website on the planet every physical travel agency and we stream all of this data to our data centers we have this massive historic archive that goes back almost a decade it has trillions and trillions of prices and with that we use artificial intelligence um, and different algorithms to figure out how the pricing is going to move in the future for the user it's pretty easy you just go in um, You set your destination, your origin, which dates you're thinking of traveling, and you can be flexible. And we tell you if you should wait or buy. We also predict the best time to buy in the future. So we'll say things like, you should wait six weeks for this trip to London that you're planning and look at the best prices then. And if the price happens to drop, you get an alert, and it tells you this is a good time to buy. It's cheaper than anything we've seen in the past and anything we've seen in the future. Price tracking has been around for a while. Um, but as you mentioned, we have about 80 million people that have used us and people save an average of $60, which kind of matters on a $400 average ticket.
1: Wow. And how much notice just on average does it give you if the, if the price drops and then it sends the alert and says, actually, perhaps now's the time to buy? Is there a pattern over how close to the, to the point of travel you tend to be?
9: Of course, that all depends on the travel route and the season. So if we take, for example, the holiday travel, we're expecting a record of 54 million people in the U.S. are going to travel for the holidays. That's 20% more than last year, and it's actually 4% higher than 2019. So we're setting a record this year. In a period like that, the only thing to do to save money was to book super early. So if you're planning to go for holiday travel and you haven't booked, it's going to cost you. If you look outwards... Let's say post holiday travel, a ski trip, or you're going to hit the islands, um, usually a 90 day window, you'll get the alerts. Anything within two weeks of travel generally is more expensive. So you're going to end up booking your ticket maybe a week or two sooner than everybody else, and that's where you get the most savings. What happens also from time to time, there are less people on the planes, and then the airlines will drop the prices for a day. And that's where it really pays off to be using an app like Hopper.
1: Ah, interesting. Yeah, because then and you instantly get the alert when they do those um, those sort of quick sales. And ninety five percent accuracy, I think, was um, was one of the stats that leapt out at me. Now the app is free. You obviously make money. I'm assuming when people actually book via the app, but you also offer sort of fintech products within the app yep, too.
9: That's correct. So. Um we're a boring gigantic travel agency in terms of our business model but what we offer on top of the prediction using a lot of the same data we use to forecast prices are things like price freeze so for a few dollars we'll actually hold the price if it's a good one that you want to you want to have frozen for a few days so you can make up your mind maybe you need to talk to your spouse um, and right now we have a lot of products that help you make non-refundable things refundable so if you're Travel plans change, um, you can get your money back, and also a very popular product, Um, Right now is the disruption protection. So if your flight is late for an hour, um, you can either get all your money back and get rebooked by the airline for free or Hopper, the app will rebook you on any other airline. So you don't have to spend an entire day waiting uh, for the airline you booked on to get a flight in. Uh, If we're considering holiday travel, that product is especially popular. Um, And you may your listeners may have heard this, um, but there's actually a big storm that's going to hit the US, which is terrible timing. So we expect Mm. it's going to be crowded but also very disruptive.
1: Yeah, and I I mean, I read too that the fintech offerings that you provide, as you've just mentioned, a number of them are 70% of the air booking revenue that you're creating at the moment just to give people a sense of scale. And you don't do advertising, which I think would also um, uh, delight some people, quite frankly, who don't want to be spammed while they're trying to book these things as well because it's stressful enough. Um, How unique, by the way, is this technology? Because If I look at some of the other big travel apps that we're talking about, for example, Expedia is one that that instantly comes to mind. But I don't see their kind of offering like this, too. So I just wonder whether that sort of almost makes you an acquisition target, if they could incorporate your kind of technology. Are are you um, perhaps open to that?
9: I mean, we're basically building the largest company uh, in the world and we, we cater to a new generation. A lot of our users are under 25 um, and, and they have very different expectations. Expedia is the website that I used when I was young, which is already quite a while ago. And so the, the new generation of consumers, the millennials and the, the Gen Z, um, you know, they're consuming content through TikTok to plan their travel. They're going directly to the app. Most of their commerce is on their phone. So we really cater to this new generation. Um, the FinTech offerings, the price predictions, they're all based on this data advantage that we've built over the decades. And we're extremely focused on two things. One is making it easier to book, finding the right time, getting more flexibility, but also getting a lower fare. And one of the things that we've done that's been a runaway success this year is all the social commerce. So taking inspiration from the uh, Eastern apps in Asia, um, we let people, you know, come in, play games, we run uh, sales um where you can share the app and earn money and this year instead of doing advertising we've given away over 50 million dollars to our customers through sharing the app or playing these games so to help them lower the cost of their travel and that's been just a huge huge um, success in our demographic the app Mm. is being shared through these gaming systems over a million times a month right now
1: wow um, so you didn't actually answer my question about whether you're in the market to be bought, but I think you've actually answered the question as if to say, um, you know, you're here for a modern generation and you may have 11 percent market share of um, right now. But you're uh, you're perhaps going to grow big enough to uh, buy them one day, perhaps <laughs> provide their customers. something. <laughs> yeah, I know where you're headed. Um, talk to me about growth, talk to me about international growth, because while the app is available, I can see around the world, the majority of those downloads are coming from the United States growth plans? Do you need to raise more money to do it? Talk me through that.
9: So we've grown about 25 fold, 25 times since our pre-pandemic scale. So we were really a story of innovating through the pandemic. But I think another of the really exciting changes we've had this year is we've gone from about 2% of our business originating outside of North America. And that's how we really define international growth is having international customers, not Americans flying abroad. And so this month, 20 percent of our business is from outside of North America. We're starting to have a huge presence in Latin America, which has always been a good market for us. But also Europe and Asia have been growing. And the growth rate outside of the U.S. is actually more than twice what we're seeing in the U.S. So I wouldn't be surprised this time next year if 50 percent of our business isn't coming out of those markets. They're very mobile friendly. Um, Mobile is used even more frequently in those markets. But social commerce is just such a natural fit for some of these markets like Asia and Latin America that we are very bullish on the outcome there.
1: Yeah, and reopening across uh, significant parts of Asia, like China, of course, too, is going to be um, fascinating to see as well. Um, Fred, fantastic to chat to you. Thank you so much. And we will reconvene on this conversation and see how that growth is going. Um, and I know you also plant two trees for every booking that's made um, on the website as well. And I did want to talk to you about that. But um, we've run out of time. We shall reconvene. Fred, happy holidays. Thank you so much. You too. Fred Thank Lallande, you. The co-founder and CEO of Hopper. Great to chat to you. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on this first day of winter. Just remember the days get brighter and longer from here. Hopefully the market picture will improve too and as if on cue. U.S. stocks jumping higher in early trade. The S&P 500 on track for a second straight day of gains. The Dow Industrials getting a nice boost too after strong results from member firm Nike. It's making progress in cutting inventories. We also saw strong gains for FedEx too. look at that a bit higher as well. The packaging delivery firm missing on revenues amid sluggish demand. But it is also promising new cost cuts, too. And finally, he was last seen flying high over Buenos Aires as crowds saluted him and his World Cup winning champions. But it seems Lionel Messi not content with simply being one of the greatest sportsmen to ever live. He's also among the greatest influencers, too. This post on Instagram has now become the platform's most liked ever. It had almost 70 million likes so far, beating a record set by the famous Instagram Egg. I never saw that. But that apparently got 57.1 million likes. Excellent. And Argentinian fans aren't the only ones celebrating. The party raged in Rabat on Tuesday, too. The Atlas Lions were given a hero's welcome after finishing fourth at the World Cup. Morocco were the first African team and the first from an Arab country to reach the semi finals. After topping their group, they amazed World Cup watchers by taking down giants Spain and Portugal in the knockout rounds, too. And huge celebrations there, and they deserve it, too. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you next week.
2: Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.